Welcome to Cato Audio for June 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Andrew Basevich discusses our long war in the Middle East. Randy Bateman explains how robots will change the economy. Jerry Brito details how Bitcoin and the blockchain will change all kinds of transactions. And Randy Barnett defends our Republican Constitution. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. As we record this, there are uh, numerous concerns that Venezuela is headed for a collapse amid food shortages, uh, blackouts, gridlock, and sort of a breakdown of a long-standing and continuing breakdown of the economy of Venezuela. And uh, here to discuss that, Pedro Borelli, he's, the man- he's a managing partner at B&V Consulting. And for our purposes today, he's a former board member of the state-owned Venezuelan oil monopoly. I'm also joined by Ian Vasquez, uh, director of the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. So to begin here, uh, uh, Pedro, I'll ask you to begin, give us a sense of what Venezuela has gone through in the last six years. I would say it's longer. Let me just take a okay, little go bit back, back. Go back further. I think if you see the, the decline of Venezuela, it's probably 34, 35 years in which the model under which existed, which is basically the distribution of easy wealth, which was oil wealth, which a state just simply distributed among the population, that system showed signs that it was no longer functioning 34, 35 years ago. What happened with Chavez is that the system, rather than be corrected, it was exacerbated. The model was, you know, because of high oil prices and the whole populist formula that Chavez brought in, you know, instead of correcting, we actually doubled down on a failed model. And the model, you know, therefore, what we saw in the last 17 years uh, was this accelerated in the, the collapse of the logic of an economic and social model. And then what we've seen... Since the death of Chavez, which is not because Chavez died, it's because also it coincided with the drop in oil prices, was that the model could no longer be fueled or funded. And we're seeing a society that has no alternative at all to oil, that depends absolutely on oil, that has basically lost all of its income. Um, This, in a normal situation, you know, sometimes you see states that fail. Here is a country that failed. Uh, There is, you know, when states default, Sometimes the private sectors have a boom, have an opportunity to boom. Uh, Argentina, while the government defaulted, the private sector had a very long period of growth. In this case, the private sector was destroyed first. And then when the state accounts collapsed, basically the countries collapsed. So what we're seeing is probably one of the worst cases of a middle-income country completely, completely going broke. Not I repeat, not the state of Venezuela, not the state accounts of Venezuela, Venezuela as a country. So what has, uh, over this time period, these last 35 years, uh, Ian, what has the state done to uh, make worse this problem of possibly the private sector actually taking taking over and dealing with the problems that the state has essentially created? Well, Venezuela really is a case of the curse of natural resources in which a country rich in natural resources, instead of becoming rich itself, impoverishes itself. And so I would agree that Chavez 
was really a continuation of a trend that started several decades ago in the 1970s, especially when uh, the government nationalized the, the oil industry and started centralizing all of that wealth in its own hands and centralizing uh, power under what was a democratic system. Uh, but I think that Venezuela is a good example of a, how you can have democracy start to reduce little by little and then uh, more and more uh, in more significant ways economic freedom and end up without economic freedom or political freedom or civil freedoms, which is exactly the case of, of Venezuela. Venezuela uh, stopped being a democracy long ago and has been an authoritarian uh, regime for a long time. And in the, in the economic sphere, uh, there's been a devolution too. Venezuela in 1970 was the richest country in Latin America. Today it's poorer than it was in the 1970s, and other countries have far surpassed it. All right. This is from uh, Steve Hankey, who uh, monitors troubled currencies uh, on behalf of the Cato Institute. He writes this morning, this is the middle of May, in January, the International Monetary Fund told us that Venezuela's annual inflation rate would hit 720 percent by the end of this year. The IMF's World Economic Outlook, which was published in April, stuck with the 720 percent inflation forecast. What the IMF failed to do is tell us how they arrived at the forecast. Never mind, the press has repeated that figure ad nauseum. Since the IMF 720% forecast has been elevated to the status of a factoid, it is worth a bit of reflection and analysis. So uh, it seems like even now, there are groups that are not really clear on what is going to happen uh, months and years in, in, into the future to Venezuela's economy. I think one of the failures, um, you know, in the collapse of, of, of the government, one of the things that happens when you try to control a society and it doesn't work is that you then want to start basically making up the statistics to the point that now you have no idea of any number. Uh, you don't know how much Venezuela produces in oil, which is its main source of income. You have no idea how much comes in in cash for the sale of that oil. You don't know how much it costs to produce that oil. You don't know what the reserves in the central bank are. You do not know what inflation is. You don't know how they calculate it. They talk about you know unemployment being at, at its lowest, but everybody's unemployed, standing in lines. The, the definitions of what the statistics mean are meaningless at this stage. So one of the big failures of this is that it's very difficult to come with a correct diagnostic if you have no basis in terms of statistics. What you have is a sense in terms of, of other statistics of pain that the situation is reaching a level that is not being seen in a country outside of a war situation. Now, we have a rich country in the middle of the Americas, right smack in the middle of the Americas, two hours away from Miami, completely culturally attached to the Western way of living that's actually exhibiting conditions that are things that we've seen in sub-Saharan Africa or war-torn countries. And that this has happened in the 21st century with everybody watching, it's what's somewhat amazing because everybody's watching, everybody's observing. Cato has been on this case, for example, for years uh, predicting absolutely to the dot what is happening, as, as some of others have done, um, and it happened. I mean, so that's probably the most amazing part of the story is that it, it didn't happen suddenly. I mean, we've seen every single signal that we're going to end up here, and everybody said it cannot happen. For example, when people said, are we going towards Cuba? I said, no, 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 Cuba's an island. 
Well, Venezuela is an island. If people can't travel outside, if people don't have the money to get on a plane, you suddenly become an island. You don't need to have water to be an island, okay? You can create, a, you know, close the borders with Colombia. I mean, a country that you have a completely fluid border, and now it's closed. People used to work or live in one side of the border or the other and just cross every single day. In, in our entire history, the government has closed that. So my sense is that you could actually get to a situation that's worse than Cuba because you could lose your liberties, but also if the state is chaotic, which is the situation of Venezuela, you could also lose your life randomly. So the level of violence, the level of chaos that Venezuela has actually is way above any that we've seen in Cuba. In Cuba, you've got an authoritarian government that actually exercises authority. Whether we like it or not, there's authority being exercised in that society. This is a, a, this is a government that aspires to be authoritarian in Venezuela, but it has no capabilities to exercise authority. It's, it's quite arbitrary the way that it practices its repression, and that adds to the uncertainty in the country. Venezuela has become one of the most violent countries uh, in, in the world. Caracas is one of the most violent cities uh, in the world, and it's hard to describe the depth of the crisis. This is an economic, social, and political crisis that Venezuela is, is in. It's getting worse by the day, and it's turned into a humanitarian crisis. There's, there's no food. Uh, there's, there's scarcities of the basic foods. There's no electricity. There's blackouts. There's uh, scarcity of, of water. People are dying in the hospitals and outside of the hospitals every day because of a lack of medicines. I mean, in the, in the public hospitals, uh, infant, the infant mortality rate in the past year has gone up by about uh, 100 times. The mortality rate of new mothers in those hospitals has gone up by five times. There's, there's just not medicine. There's no cleanliness there because of the lack of water and, and uh, medical equipment is broken. There's x-ray machines, but they don't work. There are all sorts of things that, that don't work. And people are stealing whatever they can get because of the scarcities. This is from uh, the New York Times just this weekend. Uh, the rate of death among babies under a month old increased by more than 100-fold in public hospitals run by the health ministry to just over 2% in 2015 from 0.02% in 2012. That's according to a government report provided by lawmakers. So you build a society through voluntary interaction and you have uh, you know a, br a breakdown based on elements of government coercion and seemingly an inability for uh, civil society to pick things back up. Um, why was this not seen coming as you know as late as four years ago? I think people were very confused internationally. And as a Venezuelan, I had to deal uh, increasingly with the things that, oh, Chavez is popular, Chavez is doing good things for the people and all that. And it was a very sad um, tale about how people know nothing about countries and actually make opinions based on some polling data. In a country in which everybody increase, was increasingly dependent on state give handouts, and, and you're confusing popularity with dependency. And that is basically what observers missed all the time. People are, Chavez was not popular. Chavez had the money and people were needy. That relationship was a perverse relationship. That relationship has now ended 
because the successor, Nicolás Maduro, does not have the money. It would have ended if Chávez had been around and the same oil situation would have happened. This is not a system that changed. This is a system that basically is now showing all of its weaknesses when what fueled it, which was basically a price boom. I mean, it wasn't even that Venezuela was producing more oil. It was that the price of oil went up. So literally, with no productivity, and as a matter of fact, with a reduction in productivity, with a the demonstrable collapse of the oil company, they still got a windfall because of the high oil prices. It was a distribution, that very disorganized, chaotic distribution of that money that created the problem. The real thing is that if we look back at Venezuela from the start of his democratic experiment in 1958, the idea was always that the role of the state was to distribute this wealth. The concept of wealth creation and wealth redistribution never ever occurred in Venezuela. The perception that both the left, which is in power, and the center or the right in Venezuela has always been, we can distribute that wealth better. The notion that you can create wealth is not a known notion in Venezuela. It is, we are rich because we're endowed with all these resources. The state's responsibility is to distribute it. And when they distribute it well, we're happy. When they distribute it badly, we are unhappy. And usually when we distribute it well, it's not because you do it well. It's just because you have a lot of money. So the oil booms that we've had over the last 40 years have brought bonanzas. But basically, they've been peaks. When you actually look at the long story, and particularly as I was saying before, from 34, 35 years ago, you basically have had a straight line decline in living standards in Venezuela because the model really did not work. You cannot have a parasite system in which the entire population, a growing population, just depends on that. But, but, but mixing that and, you know, some people in the opposition, I think one of the mistakes they make is that they're as populist as the government is. Their offer is we can distribute it better. We can do a better job with this completely failed system. What's interesting right now is how do you do it if you have no money? You know, so what is the offer that you're putting in front of the people if your model is the same model but it doesn't have any money to fuel it? Yeah, I think that, that uh, one of the lessons is exactly exactly that. The problem is the model. I mean, the boom really did uh, support Chavez and make him look like he had uh, much more ability to uh, achieve his his goals than, than he actually did, and, and he was failing at those, but this was masking the, the failures of his, of his own policies. If you read the press, a lot of the international press today, it says that uh, Venezuela is going through a crisis because of a fall in oil prices. Certainly that has contributed to, to what has happened, but in fact, the crisis in Venezuela began long before the fall in oil prices. There were scarcities. There were econo other types of economic problems. There were political uh, problems and social problems were already popping up long before that. And so we can trace the, 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 these outcomes to the actual policies that have been in place for about 17 years, capital controls which uh, gives the state an enormous power over the, whatever private sector I is left and, of course, fuels corruption and favoritism. Uh, you can think of virtually every bad policy that a country could implement, and that's what has happened in Venezuela. Price controls, uh, a, a central bank that prints as much money as the, the government wants, absolutely no uh, transparency at all in what the government does a legislature that isn't the legislature up, up until recently just uh, rubber-stamped everything that the government uh, wanted. 
total concentration of, uh, of uh, political power among all the branches and, and agencies of government, from the, from the legislature to the military, to the central bank, to the election uh, committee, uh, and on and on. This is an authoritarian regime that imposes uh, economic and social policies that gives it ever more uh, political control of the kind that we rarely see in today's world. As I noted earlier, you know, Venezuela had so many defenders it, just a few years ago. Is it that they're just looking at these top-line numbers, essentially saying, oh, he's popular, he is distributing the goods, and we can forgive all the rest of it? I think the popularity from the outside was a sum of things. I mean, you had a, an anti-U.S. sentiment, and you had a champion in Chavez, you know, who basically made anti-U.S. rhetoric, you know, a big part of his imagery. And, and I think people who wanted to say something to the U.S. Um, were jumping on his boat. You had an extreme left. You have a pro-Cuban, uh, strong pro-Cuban sentiment in the region, um, which also coalesce around an ally of Cuba. Um, you don't see many of those anymore. I mean, it is very difficult to see a coherent defense of what's going on. What's sad, however, is that you are seeing some people saying, well, the problem is Maduro. The problem was not Chavez. Maduro destroyed the model. We've got to go back to the original model. And my sense is that the original model is what is failing. There is no alternative model. And as I said before, it's a model that came from before. The thing is they're exacerbated by an oil boom, which basically made a lot of countries crazy. But some of them, however, saved money. And if you look at even the Gulf states, all of them build up their reserves and have the ability now to imagine changing their economies, like Saudi Arabia at least is proposing to do. Um, Venezuela has no money to change. Its, I mean, it has no money to run the economy, much less to imagine changing it, refocusing resources, inventing, reinventing itself. The problem is that this is what's really sad, is that you're broke, broke, broke. And there's not a great deal of willingness around the world to help a country, and the country doesn't want help. I mean, the country has actually made it policy to go around the world saying that they're not going through a humanitarian crisis. I mean, this article that we're talking about from yesterday, the 14th of May, in the New York, in the in the, uh, the 15th of May, in the New York Times, has had. I mean, I've never got so many reactions from people about an article because it talks about a situation that it's absolutely worse than it's described anywhere. That's I'd say outside of war. Now, how can anybody defend that? That is the outcome of Chavismo. That is what Chavismo brought to a country. That's what populism brought. That's what bad management, bad decision-making. This is what policies against the private sector. They're, they're, the, the private sector, if they wanted, couldn't help. And the problem is the main advisors that this government has, the main advisors, both in politics and in political repression, are an 83 and an 84-year-old Cuban advisors cronies of Fidel Castro, who are advising an economic policy, and they've invented this notion of an economic war, and an economic war justifies everything. You try to create a boogeyman, but the boogeyman is really the government. And people understanding that, they don't know what to do, okay? but when you stand up in line for five hours to buy whatever you can buy, and to try to sell it as quickly, because that's the only way, I mean, you, you, you got into a black market society that, you know, 700% inflation, it's again, a guess, 
If you say 5,000, for some elements, it's 5,000. Some, some people are facing inflation that is way beyond. I mean, you're, you're spending your entire month's wage in one, basically, trip to the supermarket. And the government has responded to all of this, this by digging, digging in. By digging digging in and denying that there's a crisis and going to international forums and saying there is no humanitarian crisis. Why are they doing this? They're doing this because the Cuban advisor said, if you recognize there's a humanitarian crisis, you have to recognize that you failed. If you failed and you get help, you'll be intervened. And if you be intervened, you'll be overthrown. So you stand up and you deny this at the expense of more people suffering, more people dying, and more people fleeing the country. But you stand firm because the sole objective of those advisors and of a little core of heavily criminalized government officials is to stay in power. And just in the past few days, the government has uh, decreed that uh, the president has ever more uh, powers, that uh, he's going to militarize uh, even more parts of uh, society, and that uh, any business that isn't being productive in the private sector will be taken over by the government because it's all part of the private sector's war, economic war, on Venezuela that's, tr that's responsible, of course, for the problems that the country is going through. What are the big lessons for neighbors? And there are certainly countries that have uh, taken part, have enjoyed the commodities boom and suffered after it, it fell apart. And some of those countries adopted less, less uh, dramatic policies as Venezuela, but similar policies. What are the big lessons that either have been taken or should be taken? Well, I, I think it's a fascinating process. Obviously, lessons are very costly. A lot of people have been suffering to learn these lessons. But I think what you've seen from Argentina, Brazil, to some extent, uh, even in Ecuador, in Colombia, which actually had different policies, uh, but suddenly got a little bit giddy with its oil, newfound oil wealth. Uh, definitely in Peru that tried to avoid uh, the mistakes. They had a commodity boom in, in, in minerals and mining was a, a huge component. But I think there's a formula coming out of this um, that I think will be good for the region. And I think the formula is that you cannot buy your way out by handing out just money, by, by buying votes, that you actually have to build institutions. You've got to build infrastructure for education, infrastructure for health. Those have to be long-lasting. You know, that the short-term measures that are very much electorally driven uh, probably are now falling very much out of fashion. I think the notion of, of uh, presidential terms that just extend and re-election, I think, is one that will be revisited in, in the whole region. Uh, the blow-up of Venezuela, on the other hand, it's very unique, and Venezuela is always a unique case. There is no country in the region in which a state had so much control over the resources. I mean, the ability of the state to ignore the private sector, to ignore citizens as a whole, only exists there. The, the state did not live of taxation, did not live of the production of anybody. I mean, the state had the ability of basically taking over all the functions of a society. So that's great. Okay, so it's a statist society. But if the state fails, like I said at the beginning, the whole country fails. That model, you know, no country really had the ability of doing it. I mean, Ecuador, highly dependent on oil, really had a balanced economy. Bolivia, to some extent, very prudently stopped at some point and realized and, and went back in some of its nationalizations to avoid the problem. And it's governed in a way in which a private sector has flourished. 
Uh, even Nicaragua, you know, in, in a case where, I mean, there's corruption, there's all kinds of things going on, you've got an economy that's still functioning because there's spaces that have been left for the private initiative. Venezuela, even now, when you would need the private sector to come in, the, the objective is to destroy it. The last standing large company in Venezuela, basically a model of quality in terms of management, quality, um, social involvement, which is Polar, which is the largest food conglomerate, basically has been brought to the ground because that is the objective. In their model, the Cuban vision, the Fidelista vision of what Venezuela should be, there is no room for the private sector. And the hell with the suffering of the people, you've just got to further and double down on a broken model. I think the big lesson from, from Venezuela is that freedom and democracy are incompatible with populism. That if you want to have a certain acceptable high degree of civil liberties and political liberties, you have to have a certain degree of economic freedom. You have to have uh, an economy that is based on market exchanges. And Venezuela shows that, that when you start eroding that, you start eroding all the other liberties as well. And this is important because uh, that lesson was certainly clear with Castro's Cuba, which uh, declared itself communist and never pretended to be democratic. But Venezuela was the, the socialism of the 21st century that uh, supposedly was democratic and derived its legitimacy from that, but it was um, a farce. It was false. And we see what happens when you take away economic freedoms, you end up without any freedoms, including political freedoms. And that's a lesson that uh, all of Latin America is, is learning and is not anxious to, to repeat. Uh, but it's a lesson that we have to keep uh, repeating because, of course, these tendencies, especially in the region, never really uh, fully go away. But if there's a silver lining to the episode in Venezuela, it's that in the rest of the region, uh, the left and those ideas are going through a real crisis. And I think people are, uh, are learning not just from Venezuela, but from those countries in Latin America, like, like Peru, like Chile, that chose market democracies and are, are succeeding. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. Pedro Borelli, a former board member of the state-owned Venezuelan oil company and managing partner at B plus V Consulting, and Ian Vasquez, uh, director of the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. You can learn more about these uh, important issues as they relate to Venezuela and other countries around the world in the Human Freedom Index that the Cato Institute uh, produces. Ian is one of the authors of that project. And read more of our commentary and uh, studies on the subject of, of Latin America and human freedom at our website, Cato.org. What kind of constitution does the United States have? Randy Barnett argues in his new book, Our Republican Constitution, that we the people is a collection of individuals and not a collective. Barnett spoke at the Cato Institute in April. At the conclusion of the Philadelphia Convention, anxious citizens gathered outside Independence Hall to learn just what had been produced behind closed doors. The convention had been governed entirely in secret. It is said that as Benjamin Franklin left the building, a woman in the crowd called out to him, 
Well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? And Franklin is said to have responded, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. But while the new form of government devised in Philadelphia was not a monarchy, neither was it democratic. Yet Franklin still called it a republic. That's because the meaning of that term, republic, or republican, had just been changed by the men inside the building from which Franklin was leaving. A republican constitution was no longer a democratic constitution, if it ever truly had been. In my book, Our Republican Constitution, I explain how these two fundamentally divergent views of the Constitution divide us even today. I call these divergent views the Democratic Constitution and the Republican Constitution, but I don't intend these labels to be partisan. There are political um, conservatives who hew, to some aspect, who hew to some aspect of the Democratic Constitution and some progressives who adopt aspects of the Republican one. Many people, perhaps most people, flit between conceptions, depending on which happens to conform to the results they like on a particular issue. I contend that what divides those who adhere to a democratic constitution from those who favor a republican constitution are two fundamentally inconsistent visions of we the people, the first three words of the constitution, that lead to two radically different conceptions of popular sovereignty. Those who adhere to a democratic constitution hold a different conception of we the people and popular sovereignty than those who adhere to a Republican one. A democratic constitution views we the people as a group. We the people as a group. And the purpose of a constitution is to empower the majority of the people to rule. The idea of we the people as a group is we the, the people must rule we the people must rule as a group, and the only way the people can rule as a group is for a majority to rule. How else are they going to do it? And therefore, the purpose of the Constitution is to set up a democratic mechanism to express the will of the people. It makes perfect sense. In this scheme, unelected judges are problematic because they are thought to thwart the will of the people as reflected in their legislatures. Under a democratic Constitution, therefore, the will of the majority should generally prevail. In contrast, a Republican Constitution views we the people as individuals. As the Declaration of Independence affirmed, we the people are endowed with certain inalienable rights, among which are the individual rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Then the next sentence of the Declaration, and I spend a chapter one entirely on the Declaration of Independence, the next sentence of the Declaration says that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Not all powers, not unlimited powers, but their just powers are what they derive from the consent of the governed. But the purpose of government is to secure the individual rights that the previous sentence had just referred to, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So in short, under the Republican Constitution, first come rights, and then comes government's to secure the pre-existing rights of we the people as individuals. And then, to ensure that government is held to its just powers, the Constitution is put in writing, such as this, to provide the law that governs those who govern us. We are all governed by laws that are made by governmental agencies, but this is the law that governs those who govern us. 
Now, as I explained in several chapters of our Republican Constitution, the Constitution secures these rights primarily in two ways. First, by means of federalism, in which the federal government is limited to its enumerated powers, while allowing 50 states to adopt a diversity of social and economic regulations. And second, by a separation of powers in which the national powers to make, execute, and enforce the laws are placed in separate hands. But in addition, judges too are servants of the people, and they have a duty to keep legislators within, the, with the, with, within what the Declaration calls their just powers by invalidating irrational and arbitrary laws. After all, we the people cannot be presumed to have consented to delegate to our servants in the legislature the power to arbitrarily or irrationally restrict the exercise of our pre-existing rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The death of Justice Antonin Scalia, combined with Senate Republicans' refusal to consent to any nominee until after November, has raised the stakes on an issue that should always be at the forefront of any presidential campaign, but usually isn't. And that is the future of the Supreme Court and our Constitution. As a result of his death, selecting the next justice is already a prime topic of the ongoing presidential contest. But now is the time to be clear about the nature of the choice we face. Most today assume that the current divide on the court is political in the sense that the left side favors progressive outcomes while the right side favors conservative ones. But that's not truly the case. For example, when I argued the case of Gonzalez versus Raich before the Supreme Court in 2004, one might have supposed that the left side of the court would have favored my clients who sought to use medical marijuana as authorized by California law, while the right side of the court would have voted against so liberal a drug policy. Yet, Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justices Thomas and O'Connor sided with us, while the four most progressive justices stood in opposition. And then we lost six to three when Justices Scalia and Kennedy joined the ranks of the progressives. What was at stake for both sides, however, was not a policy dispute over marijuana, but a difference over constitutional principle. In particular, a principal disagreement over the sort of constitution we have and the proper role of judges in enforcing it. Do we have a democratic constitution in which the rule of the majority takes priority unless expressly prohibited? If so, judges should generally defer to the will of we the people as expressed by their representatives. Or do we have a Republican constitution in which the rights of we the people take priority over the decisions of their servants in the legislature, and if so, judges have a duty to ensure that the servants of we the people remain within the constitutional limits on their powers. In Raich, the liberal justices put their principled commitment to majoritarian rule at the national level above their compassion for the sick, the suffering, and the dying. Kind of have to admire them for that. Conversely, the three conservative dissenters put their principled commitment to constitutionally limited federal power above their abhorrence of drugs. Now, we cannot be sure why Justice Kennedy joined the liberals, but Justice Scalia made his reasons clear in his separate concurring opinion in Raich. Under the Necessary and Proper Clause, he wrote, 
the court must defer to Congress's judgment that it was essential to reach homegrown and consume marijuana to enforce its ban on the interstate trade. In this way, did Justice Scalia adhere to the central tenet of the Democratic Constitution, judges should defer to the majority of legislatures. In short, in Raich, six of nine justices exercised judicial restraint in deferring to the Democratic will of Congress when it came to enforcing the scope of Congress's power under the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clauses. But three justices were prepared to draw a line at federal power to prevent citizens from producing and consuming a good on their own property, leaving the regulation of such activities to the states. So in Raich, six justices hewed to the Democratic Constitution, while three were prepared to enforce the text of the Republican Constitution. As the Cold War wound down, the United States initiated a new conflict, a war for the greater Middle East. Andrew Basevich argues in his new book, America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History, that America's costly military interventions can only be understood when seeing the seemingly discrete events as part of a single war. He spoke at the Cato Institute in April. Nominally, the U.S. troops dispatched to invade, occupy, garrison, bomb, or raid various parts of the Islamic world since 1980 have sought to punish the wicked, protect the innocent, and spread liberal values. Their advertised purpose has been to liberate, defend, or deter. Yet their actual purpose has been far more ambitious, in my view. The real mission has been to sustain the claims of American exceptionalism that have long since become central to our self-identity to bring into compliance with American purposes the revolutionaries, warlords, terrorists, despots, or bad actors of various stripes given to defiance. To employ the kind of jargon that's popular in this city, back in 1980, the United States set out in willy-nilly fashion to shape the greater Middle East. Given the conditions existing there, Employing military means to bring the region into conformity with American purposes has resulted in an undertaking of breathtaking scope. Over time, U.S. forces have been in action everywhere from Iran and Iraq, Lebanon and Libya, Somalia and Sudan, Bosnia and Kosovo, Afghanistan and Pakistan, Iran and Iraq. The list goes on. Indeed, the list keeps getting longer. Along the way, we tried overwhelming force and shock and awe. We invaded, occupied, and took a stab at nation building. We experimented with counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, regime change and decapitation, peacekeeping, peacekeeping and humanitarian intervention, retaliatory strikes and preventive attack, even something that the Air Force called air occupation. U.S. forces operated overtly, covertly, and through proxies, almost certainly. They went places, indeed things, about which we, the American public today, remains in the dark. Unfortunately, no administration, from Carter's to the present, ever devised a plausible strategy for achieving these ambitious American aims. Each, in turn, has simply reacted to situations it confronted. Nor has any administration made available the means needed to make good on the grandiose ambitions that it entertained. Indeed, on the U.S. side, one of this conflict's abiding qualities 
has actually been its paltriness. Today, the problems besetting the greater Middle East are substantially greater than they were when substantial numbers of US forces first began venturing into that region. Indeed, ISIS offers but one example of the results. Now, we may argue and we may disagree regarding the underlying sources of these problems, but there is no arguing that US military efforts to alleviate the dysfunction so much in evidence have failed. To address the situation facing the United States and the greater Middle East, it seems to me there are really two plausible ways to employ American power. The first is, is basically to wait things out, insulating yourself from the problem's worst effects while promoting a nonviolent solution from within. This approach requires patience and comes with no guarantee of ultimate success. And with all the usual caveats attached, this is the approach that the United States took during the Cold War. Wait them out. The second approach is more direct. It aims to eliminate the problem through sustained and relentless military action. This approach entails less patience, but it incurs greater near-term costs. And after a certain amount of shilly-shallying, it was this head-on approach that the Union adopted during the Civil War in crushing the Confederacy. In its war for the greater Middle East, however, the United States chose neither to contain nor to crush. Instead, it charted a course midway in between. In effect, the United States chose aggravation. With politicians and generals too quick to declare victory, and with the American public too quick to throw in the towel when faced with adversity, US forces rarely stayed long enough to actually finish the job. Instead of intimidating, US military efforts have annoyed, incited, and generally communicated a lack of both competence and resolve. In the ultimate irony, the circumstances ostensibly making the Persian Gulf worth fighting for in the first place have ceased to pertain. If today the American way of life still depends, whether for better or worse, on having access to plentiful reserves of oil and natural gas, then defending Canada and Venezuela should take precedence over defending Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Even so, shorn of its initial rationale, the war for the greater Middle East continues as if on autopilot, that the ongoing enterprise may someday end, that the troops will finally come home appears so unlikely as to be unworthy of discussion. Strikingly, in the middle of a presidential campaign, the prospect of the troops ever coming home goes unmentioned. Like the war on drugs or the war on poverty, the war for the greater Middle East has become a fixture in American life and is accepted as such. Among the factors contributing to the lack of any serious challenge to the war's perpetuation seems to me four stand out. One is the absence of an anti-war or anti-interventionist political party worthy of the name. The ongoing war has long since acquired a perfidious seal of bipartisan approval. And as such, the two major parties are equally disinclined to probe too deeply into this war's origins, conduct, or prospects. A second reason for the war's perpetuation is that, is that politicians aspiring to high office find it more expedient to declare their support for the troops 
than to question the war's efficacy. So candidates in every election since 1980, emphatically in the present election cycle, every election since 1980, politicians have avoided anything like a serious debate regarding US military policy in the Islamic world. Yes, a particular military campaign gone awry, like Somalia or Iraq or Libya in 2011, might attract some attention, but never the context in which that campaign was undertaken. So the war for the greater Middle East awaits its Eugene McCarthy or its George McGovern. A third reason for the war's perpetuation is that, sadly, some individuals and some institutions actually benefit from an armed conflict that drags on and on. Those benefits are immediate and tangible. They come in the form of profits, jobs, and campaign contributions. For the military-industrial complex and its beneficiaries, perpetual war is not necessarily bad news. How will the technology used to develop Bitcoin revolutionize other areas in which ownership needs to be established or transferred? At the Cato Institute's first ever conference on cryptocurrency, the Coin Center's Jerry Brito discussed the implications of broader use of digital currencies and blockchain technology. Now, the first thing I'd like to point out is that digital currencies are nothing new. Uh, they have existed for decades, from Microsoft Points to Facebook Credits, to airline miles, World of Warcraft gold, uh, these are not new. And neither are online payment systems new, right? So PayPal, Visa, Western Union Pay, these are all examples. So what is it about Bitcoin and similar cryptography-based currencies that make them unique? Well, Bitcoin is the world's first completely decentralized digital currency. And it's the decentralized part that makes it unique. Decentralized means that there is no issuer and no central authority. There is no company, no building, no server. Before the invention of Bitcoin, for two parties to transact online, to transact electronically, always required a trusted third party, someone like PayPal or Bank of America. And so why was that? Well, what would an online transaction have looked like without a trusted intermediary? Well, let's think first about a cash transaction where no third party is needed. If I hand you a $100 bill, uh, you now have it, and I don't. And we can verify this by uh, looking at our hands. Right? You have it, I don't, and we can verify the transaction has taken place. If we tried to do that online, what would that have looked like? Well, we'd have to represent the $100 bill in some kind of digital format. Uh, we'd have to have a digital $100 file. And I would attach this $100 to a file, or sorry, attach this $100 file to a message, uh, much like I might attach a photo or Word document to an email, and I would send it to you. And you would then have the $100 file, but what about me? When I email you a Word document or a photo, is the document deleted from my computer? No. I retain a perfect digital copy. And I could send it to a second person or a third person. So with a $100 file, it would be the same thing. I would retain a perfect digital copy, and I could send it, you know, or spend it a second time, a third time. And this is what computer scientists called, quite creatively, the double spending problem. And we solved that problem by employing trusted third parties, like PayPal. When I send you $100 using PayPal, 
I don't communicate directly with you. I instead ask PayPal to deduct that amount from my balance and add it to yours. This means, however, that we must each have an account with the same third party that we trust. Bitcoin's invention is revolutionary because for the first time, the double spending problem is solved without the need for a third party. Bitcoin does this by distributing the ledger, the necessary ledger of balances of accounts and balances among all the users of the system via a peer-to-peer -peer network. Every transaction that occurs in the Bitcoin network is registered in a distributed public ledger, which is called the blockchain. The global peer-to-peer -peer network composed of thousands of users takes the place of an intermediary, and now you and I can transact online without a third party between us. And these systems that rely on cryptography, a consensus protocol, and decentralized peer-to-peer -peer networks to eliminate intermediaries are called cryptocurrencies, with Bitcoin being the first one. Now, here's the neat part. Bitcoin, at root, is a system for securely and verifiably transferring Bitcoins. And, you know, that sounds redundant. But what I mean is this, is that uppercase B Bitcoin, the protocol, the network, is a system for securely and verifiably transferring lowercase b bitcoins, the tokens. And to date, these tokens have represented money. It's the most obvious application, right? If I want to send you $100 bills, we can all agree there's a market price for a token, a bitcoin token, and I can send you the appropriate amount. But there's no reason why these tokens couldn't represent something else, anything we wanted. It can represent a share of stock, a particular house or a car, or a copyright to a song, a vote in an election, or anything else we wanted them to. And when you conceive of it that way, you begin to see endless possibilities for ledgers, for ledgers to register and transfer all kinds of assets without the need for middlemen, and maybe even more importantly, programmatically. It's an innovation that feels as exciting as the internet did to me in 1994. Now, my other task here today is uh, to bring you up to date on where we are in the public policy conversation related to cryptocurrencies. The first thing I'll say is that despite frequent statements in the press, to the contrary, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are not unregulated. For one thing, at their core, cryptocurrencies are actually an attempt at regulation through cryptography rather than human institutions. They allow for the verifiable transfer of assets and execution of contracts without relying on third parties. More to the point though, when one hears that Bitcoin is unregulated, the implication is that governments have not yet acted to regulate digital currency in some specific way, and that this thus makes them unregulated. And this is wrong on two counts. The first is that just because government may not have acted affirmatively to regulate specific technology doesn't mean that existing technology neutral regulations can still apply. They do. The second is that governments have created new laws and regulations specifically aimed at cryptocurrencies, or they have issued guidance explaining uh, how existing laws apply. So, in fact, it's much more accurate to say that because it implies money and finance, cryptocurrency is one of the most regulated technologies around. We are witnessing the dawn of a robotics revolution. In the future, robots will undergo exponential growth in terms of their ability and application. What does that mean for human employment and productivity growth? 
Randy Bateman, CEO of Balcones Investment Research, says great upheaval in employment awaits. He spoke at the Cato Institute in April. Now, we've had really four major economic revolutions uh, in this country. Uh, we had the agricultural revolution, you may recall. Uh, we had an agrarian society from the outset of our country. Uh, and even before that, we had uh, uh, another economist, Malthus, who said that we were going to starve to death because there hadn't been really any changes much in terms of productivity in the agricultural sector. That certainly did change. Technology will always trump the economic projection. Uh, the second one was the industrial revolution. Uh, this occurred in the, uh, the 19th century or so, and we had another famous economist, uh, William Stanley Gervon, a uh, British economist who said we were going to run out of coal, uh, and therefore the steam engines would not be able to perpetuate uh, the expansions that we saw during the Industrial uh, Revolution era. And then third, we have most recently had the dot-com, the computer and the info technology area that has certainly been a revolution. But when you think about each one of those three revolutions, they have generated huge economic booms. They have had great investment alternatives and options that were available as a result of those. And they have all three generated major positives for mankind. Is there any reason to think that the fourth revolution, that of robotics, will be any different? I, I don't know, and I'm not sure we're going to have an answer today, but we're going to try to explore that. A smart economist uh, always looks back in history. And in fact, you may recall Patrick Henry's famous uh, give me liberty or give me, give me death speech. But in there, he also, also said, I have but one light by which my feet are guided, and that is the lamp of experience. I know no way of judging the future but by the past. And that's what we'd like to do. If you look at this latest, or the industrial revolution that we had, you know, it was prefaced by the steam engine and the use of steam power and other mechanical devices to replace human labor, or at least to supplant it. Um, but when you think about it, look at what other things that were associated with that on the periphery. To have an industrial revolution, you had to have people migrate to the cities, to the plants. And those cities had to be developed. And how do you develop a city, okay? If you can't expand linearly and you have to expand up and down, it's very, very difficult. And it's a new paradigm, new way of thinking. And that led to a whole lot of industries, you know, changes in transportation, uh, changes in building techniques, where you had a city block that could only handle maybe 20 people if it's flat, could handle 1,000 people if it's built upward. And the only way that could happen is if you had elevators and you had air conditioning. So the Industrial Revolution itself spawned a whole different way of developing our economy and our nation. It is something that I think is going to happen with regard to robotics as well. And, uh, one of my good friends, Eric Haleas, uh, he's an engineer with Siemens and is a part of the UCF uh, executive uh, board uh, of their uh, engineering department, says that the three things that are going to be most prevalent are jobs that are going to be replaced that are dangerous, dirty, or demeaning. 
And when you think about the things that, that we have in terms of occupation that are in those three areas alone, it's very, very significant. We've got soldiers that are out there placing their lives at risk. We have policemen, we have firefighters, we have logging, fishing, electrical workers, all of which are in very hazardous uh, occupations. We have dirty jobs, mechanics, agricultural workers, roofers, painters, and particularly here in DC, we have the politicians. <laughs> Just had to throw that in, I'm sorry. Uh, we also have demeaning uh, positions. Uh, think about waste disposal. Uh, we have slaughterhouses that have to be manned. We have transportation, people that are driving um, across the country in a truck that's delivering goods uh, across country that is working 12 hours a day. Uh, those are the three areas that I think that will have the most significant and the quickest impact. Now, disagreeing with uh, Mr. Haleas, uh, is the World Economic Forum. Uh, and you may recall they, they met this past winter in Davos, as they, they inevitably do, and they talked about this fourth industrial revolution and the fears that are coming out of that uh, and the concerns that they have. I think they cited that there will be 7 million jobs lost in the uh, next uh, six years, no, excuse me, the next four years, and only 2 million that will be recovered as a result of that. Uh, and they feel that two-thirds of those lost jobs will be in the office and managerial areas. Certainly, we see a lot of things that will occur. As I was doing this research for the CFA Digest, um, they, uh, it is amazing what now robots can do in terms of surgery, in terms of legal, in terms of composing, in terms of writing. Uh, the Da Vinci surgical uh, equipment is uh, uh, really uh, propelled uh, its uh, parent company uh, to a very, very strong investment performer. So a lot of those things are going to take place. Now, some of the other benefits uh, of this robotics revolution are, are certainly highway deaths. Uh, essentially, there are 92 people that die every single day on our highways. This can perhaps be eliminated as a result of self-driving cars. They can be much more accurate. They won't blink, they won't fall asleep. They'll stay within the speed limits. Uh, those are, are critical issues. Healthcare, uh, we, uh, we know that um, the Prime Minister of Japan, Abe, uh, indicated that he felt that robots would triple in, in Japan by 2020 and the use of robots in healthcare because of their aging population and need for healthcare and health maintenance is going to stimulate that, that growth that will be very exponential in Japan. We've seen that 8.5 billion was spent by corporations last year alone on artificial intelligence. Well, that didn't necessarily produce anything, but it did employ people. And we think that those kinds of things will continue as we see this uh, emergence in the robotics arena. Cato University is an annual program that brings together outstanding faculty and participants from across the country in the highly politicized atmosphere of an election year our nation's capital is the perfect setting for this year's program, and we hope you'll join us in Washington, D.C., July 24th through the 29th as we explore the ideals of liberty 
and the fundamental values of the American Republic. For more information, visit Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.